0: American National Insurance, and Spiritless. As the weather turns colder and you're looking for a truly delicious glass of red, I have an idea for you Chimney Rock. Most everyone knows Napa makes world class wine, but not everyone knows that within the Napa Valley lies a very small but very special sub region called Stag's Leap District. It's home to Chimney Rock Winery. This winery specializes in Cabernet that is truly delicious. The wine is filled with beautiful layers of complexity and finishes with a velvety texture that Chimney Rock is known for. This is a wonderful option for gift-giving and a perfect option to bring to a special dinner party. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, Visit americannational.com slash dine. If you listen to this podcast, you know I love a great founder story. That's why I love the story of Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. Three young women from Louisville, Kentucky, who had the idea for a healthier bourbon. Healthier in the sense it has no alcohol. So you can have an evening cocktail with no guilt and almost no calories. It is so delicious. I love to squeeze an orange slice, a couple of dashes of bitters, shake it with ice, and then strain it into a beautiful glass and just kick back. If you'd like to try a bottle of Spiritless, you can use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's podcast is Miriam
1: Benakaram. What is any job enabled? What is community? Community is relationships. And when you step in and you're there meaningfully for people, they remember.
0: Mariam Benekarum is the chief marketing officer for Nextdoor, a neighborhood app creating meaningful connections for neighbors. Prior to Nextdoor, Mariam was the chief marketing officer at Hyatt Hotels, Gannett, NBC Universal, and Univision. She is known as a force for change, recognized for her boundless curiosity, ability to build dynamic teams, and forge powerful partnerships. During the pandemic, Miriam created a nonprofit called NYC Next, a volunteer movement aimed at supporting New York's artist community and revitalizing the city. NYC Next created pop ups all over the city, including a star studded rendition of New York's State of Mind. Fast Company named her one of the top 10 disruptors. The New York Post named her one of the most powerful women in New York, and Advertising Age named her a woman to watch. Please enjoy my conversation with Miriam Benacharam. Miriam, how are you? How are you? Thank you so much for agreeing to be on to Dime for the podcast. It's wonderful to see you. I met you many moons ago when you worked in Chicago at Hyatt, and it's been so fascinating and thrilling to see your career trajectory. I have so many questions for you, but I'm going to begin the way I begin all these podcasts. Okay. By asking someone their favorite restaurant, you have lived so many places and now New York City is home. So let's just let's just confine it to New York.
1: Where is your favorite restaurant currently in New York City? Well, my favorite local restaurant is Tia Pol. And it's been around for a long time. It's actually a tapas restaurant that's mm-hmm. on 10th Avenue across mm-hmm. from the Empire Diner mm-hmm. between 22nd and 23rd. I love Tia Pole. And it's, you know, it's, it was good when it started. It's good now. And um, so that's probably my favorite neighborhood spot. It's
0: delicious. It's small plates. It's casual. You can have a great conversation. You could do it in the evening or in a late afternoon for a cocktail with a friend. It's a great, great spot.
1: It's a great spot. Just got good ambiance and it's consistently good. Consistency
0: is so important in restaurants, isn't it?
1: Yeah, totally. So um, you know what you're going to get. They always deliver amazing, delicious small plates. So yeah, I highly recommend it.
0: Fantastic. Well, I know that you are originally from Iran, and you moved to the US when you were 12 years old. And you've had such a myriad of experiences living in so many different places. But I'd love it if you would take me back to when you were in college, and you were trying to decide on a career. A, were you definitely going to go into marketing and B, what was it about marketing that excited you?
1: I don't think I knew what marketing was. Um, (laughs) No, I was definitely not going to go into marketing. Um, I think when I was in college, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, but I had an internship going to college at Barnard in New York city. I was able to have an internship every semester. So I would say after my freshman year, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I actually interned at CNN. Mm -hmm. Um, I was supposed to get a job in New York. They had um, the entertainment division was here. So I got an internship there and I showed up and they actually told me I was going to work for style with Elsa Clench. So (laughs) fashion um, side of the business. Then I went back sophomore year and every semester I had a different kind of an internship. So from Working for a a woman who had a Jewish dating service that she ran out of her house. Really? Literally, there were so many. I ushered at theaters to get to see shows for free. I ended up working a summer actually in London and I interned in British politics and parliament. Then I had another internship where I um, worked for the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And then my last semester I spent in Paris and I worked for as an intern for pa- Paris Passion Magazine, which was like timeout, but in Paris. I mean, like you can see, I had lots of different things, but I, I would say the central theme was I liked storytelling and sort of experiences. And so they were always sort of in the realm of media in some way, shape or form but really storytelling. So, I mean, if you'd asked me, I would have told you maybe I wanted to be a journalist or a documentary mm-hmm. filmmaker, sort of something in the vein of storytelling.
0: So what was that first foray into marketing? When did you, when did your trajectory go from having all these incredible experiences to know, Hey, this is what I'm onto. I'm going to go straight towards marketing.
1: Uh, I went, I ended up accidentally in business school. I did a joint <laughs> degree with the international fair school and the business school. And, um, While I was there, I had an idea. I mean, this is so nutty, but when I was in college, I wrote for the school paper. I actually did sort of like an insider's column because we moved a lot. So I would be like, if you're in London, here are the places to go to be an insider. If you're in Paris, this is OK. So The Gap actually had a campaign at the time called Individuals of Style. And that campaign featured iconic celebrities and their classic white T-shirts. So it was like Kim Basinger in the white T-shirt. So then the campaign was really successful. So they localized it. And in New York, they featured sort of indie underground New York celebrities like John Lurie. And so I remember seeing that campaign and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if I combined their ads, which were more local, with my insider guide and sort of created this travel guide that was featuring their ads, but actually celebrating sort of the places that you could be a local where, for example, I'd written about Max Fish and John Lurie hung out at Max Fish, right? So I sort of had this idea of this guide. Um, After college, I tried to get a meeting at The Gap and nothing came of it. But in business school, I still had the mock-up and somebody said to me that Mickey Drexler, the president of The Gap, had actually come to speak at uh, the business school class and he was really accessible and that I should actually reach out to him. And Mickey I, Drexler? Yeah, Mickey Drexler. So this was pre-internet. So I packaged up the book. I put a cover note. I actually convinced my market research class to sort of test out the idea. I sent it to him in the mail and he called. Wow. And what did he say? Well, he wanted to know if I wanted to job at The Gap. We then talked <laughs> about the guidebook. <laughs> and I said... Um, No, I wasn't really looking for a job at the Gap. I wanted to know if I could make this guidebook. Then we sort of compared notes about some of the places I'd written about in San Francisco. And he said, I said, well, if you go to the Ace Cafe, which was one of the places I'd written up, I said, I'll see you there over Christmas. And he said, why are you coming home at the time my mom lived in San Francisco? I said, I am. He said, well, here's my travel schedule. Book me up. Wow. And did you, did you meet, did you meet with him? I did. I ended up going to see Mickey and his head of recruiting called me and actually that call I was surprised to get that call. But anyway, yeah. when she called, she said, you should go into marketing. This project that you've pitched is a marketing idea.
0: And did you end up working for the gap? No, I did not. But it was, it was, it was that all that effort, all that energy, all that vision that allowed you to see, hey, not only am I good at something, but I might actually like this.
1: You know, honestly, I say to Susan Kruper and Mickey Drexler that they set me off on my career, even though I never ended up going to the gap. Susan looked at it. She was the head of recruiting at The Gap. And she said, this is a marketing idea. You should consider going into marketing. And then I happened to go into the career services. And I did one of those bubble chart tests that was supposed to tell you what you should do with your life. And it told me, I think I should be an account person because I was a combination right brain, left brain person, like in advertising. And so I literally graduated and took a job. I joke now the lowest paying job coming out of business school in advertising um, wow. at the one place that recruited at business school. Which was minor
0: okay well first of all that's this is just kind of mind-blowing i actually did work at the gap just when right when you were doing this project because i had to answer the phone that said hello thanks for calling the gap james dean wore khakis and it was part of this it was the same so i know exactly what you're talking about very much the same era so it was there that you realized that you might have an interest because advertising especially many years ago marketing and advertising were very much intertwined. And I don't think there was the distinction that there is now, don't you think?
1: No. And in those days, a lot of the ideas were generated at the agency level, not so much. I mean, you know, the world has changed immensely, but, and I actually really loved the advertising job. It gave me a view into lots of different things. I sort of had variety, Mm -hmm. you know, they moved, because we were business school students, they moved us through accounts pretty quickly to give, um, get us exposure. So I worked on, um, the Today Sponge always a great conversation maker. <laughs> and, you know, I worked on the family planning brands for Clear, Clear Plan, and Clear Blue Easy. I worked on Jiffic, General Foods, and National Coffee, Xerox, People Magazine. I worked on a lot of different things, even though I was only at WinR for a year and a half. But I sort of like the inflection between solving a problem, and creativity.
0: Mm. So you took the job as CMO of Nextdoor literally right before the pandemic. First of all, can you explain what Nextdoor is and what was that like to take a job one month before the pandemic?
1: So Nextdoor is where you go to plug into the neighborhoods that matter to you. So for example, Nextdoor was basically founded on the idea that technology could connect you in real life to those living, um, close to you. So your physical neighbors. And I think at the time they read an article that Charles Blow had written for the New York times, um, the founders, and it said that 28% of Americans didn't know a single one of their neighbors. And that was Mm -hmm. a startling statistic to the founders at the time, because obviously the internet had come and would become more connected and yet more disconnected. Interesting. They then find Bob Putnam's book. It's like a seminal book on community. And he writes about bowling alone and how America had become more connected, but more disconnected. And they thought, could we leverage technology to solve for this disconnection? So, inherently, what Nextdoor does is it connects you to those who live near you. It's like instant distribution to your whole neighborhood, which includes, for me, Troy and Nathaniel, who live down the street, you know, Bergamote or Tia Pole, the restaurants the ENT workers, sort of my entire neighborhood ecosystem here Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. And today you actually can check in on neighborhoods that matter to you beyond the one you live in. You will be able to get to check in on neighborhoods that might have um, been ones that you cared about, like Lafayette, California, where I went to high school or uh, Paris, France, where we operate and where you might want to visit, right? So it's about a neighborhood view, but the entire neighborhood ecosystem. And Nextdoor is really designed to be the place you go to check in and get a full view across not just restaurants or businesses, but the whole ecosystem that is your neighborhood.
0: Isn't it interesting when looking back, you know, the whole quote about connecting the dots, because that's how you started. You started about writing these travel guides of different neighborhoods and where to go. And here you are at a company doing just that, except with an even broader and bigger mission, which is to connect people. You have really become known um, across multi-disciplines as someone who creates communities. So that sounds uh, like a very esoteric term. But can you unpack that a little bit? And what does that mean to create communities?
1: Well, I think for for me, you know, it's funny. I never thought about it quite in those ways. But I think for me as a kid who grew up and experienced revolution and moved, right, I lost community. And I always remember my happy place was my grandmother's living room where there was people always coming and going, right, sort of that Mm. center of hub of activity. And I think I was always then trying to land and recreate that in some way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I did the insider's guides. When I traveled, I didn't want to be a tourist. I wanted to feel like a local. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was always trying to recreate my community ever since. Right. And so I don't think I recognize it in that way, but when you show up and you step in and you get a job or an internship, or you get plugged in, you actually do invest in the community and by, Mm -hmm. by virtue, you begin to develop a community. So I think it's not a surprise now, come full circle, that Nextdoor is in the business of connecting you to your community, your neighbors in essence. It's funny to look back. It's easy to look back and make the thread. I don't know that I knew that that's what I was doing at the time. But I think now when I think about it, it comes all the way back from having sort of lost that and trying to recreate that.
0: We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. But with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt, you can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. To Dine for the podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. As the weather turns colder and you're looking for a truly delicious glass of red, I have an idea for you: Chimney Rock. Most everyone knows Napa makes world-class wine, but not everyone knows that within the Napa Valley lies a very small but very special subregion called Stags Leap District. It's home to Chimney Rock Winery. This winery specializes in Cabernet that is truly delicious. The wine is filled with beautiful layers of complexity, and finishes with a velvety texture that Chimney Rock is known for. This is a wonderful option for gift-giving and a perfect option to bring to a special dinner party. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. How do you create people who are more concerned about their community, their neighbors, their neighborhood, when the statistics are showing us that because we feel like we're more connected on a phone, we actually aren't. So it's you really asking to change consumer behavior and asking to change the way people act. How do you do that? And what role does storytelling do as part of that?
1: Well, I mean, I think you're seeing the disconnection numbers. You're seeing the impact of mental health on mental health, right? Like all these trends. And by the way, on COVID, where people, many of whom had to be isolated and didn't have a lot of interaction. So I think you're also seeing this loneliness epidemic where there are people who are, who actually have loneliness ministers, like in Tokyo, they have a loneliness minister. They have one in, the in England. Yes. Yeah. So I think the idea that, um, our disconnection is having impact on us in ways that we may not have understood that that is a reality i know vivek murphy wrote a book and in, in that he talks about how loneliness has more of an impact on you than smoking cigarettes right i mean there's this incredible thing that happens to you. And so being connected, we did a research study, being connected to six neighbors actually changes your outlook. And Mm -hmm. six neighbors is not um, a heavy investment, by the way, right? (laughs) Right. By the way, when I say commitment, it it can be like somebody who knows your name. It's kind of like what I call the cheers effect, right? Norm comes into the bar, they know him, (laughs) they're not his best friend, right? That sense of belonging that comes from what many people call weak ties or the middle ring, you know, there's a lot of sociological studies on this topic, make people feel like they have a community and they belong and in fact then enables them to do all kinds of other things from being able to step into welcoming other people to being able to offer and ask for help which i think one of the things you saw when the pandemic broke out was how many people on our platform offered to help each other. And frankly, wow. the preponderance of people offering to help was much higher than those asking for help. Cause I think it's mm-hmm. hard to ask for help, but the number of neighbors who said, Hey, I'm able-bodied, I can run groceries for you, or how can I be there for you? Was really startlingly high and not just in the U S across all the international markets in which we operated. And I think one of the things you see is the human need is to step in and and have a purpose and be a value and people, in times of crisis, I actually think that's the thing that shows up. Hmm.
0: It's really interesting. Um, we, we we touched on the fact that you took this job one month before the pandemic hit, and here you are creating communities. What was it like uh, being the CMO but doing it almost all virtually?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it's a good thing we're adaptive as a as a culture. I, I mean, of course, I didn't predict this, the pandemic, so it's not like I knew that I was going to be working virtually, but we all pivoted. And frankly, you see how many businesses pivoted to actually be able to accelerate their digital transformation. Everybody right. was, was pivoting. I think for us in particular, we knew that neighbors were turning to next door as a place to get information. I mean, lives depended on it. It wasn't about a sale. It was mm-hmm. about how do you be there meaningfully for your neighbors? And so we, you know, worked around the clock trying to enable things that had been on the roadmap for further down the line to actually happen sooner. So, for example, one of the things we enabled was groups so that you could find people easier than having to scroll through the feed. So... We enabled groups pretty quickly after COVID broke. And I remember one of the first things I did was I started a group on, Nextdoor, on my next door called um, Neighbors Helping Neighbors because I wanted to be able to consolidate everybody who was either offering or asking for help in one place. Then we actually had a, a map functionality that had been used mainly for trick-or-treating so that people could pin their houses so that you could visually see where people were offering candy. Mm-hmm. And so we flipped that to become a help map so that you could see how far somebody was from you who either needed or was offering help. And so all these things, right, were things that you would have thought would have taken much longer. And it wasn't just next door. It was many companies who were able to pivot. It just created a ton of innovation. And frankly, there's nothing more meaningful than being there in an authentic way to meet a customer's need. And, and in this case, life and death depended on it.
0: Right. There's that old quote, you know, never let a, a crisis go to waste, right. in that people really can rally around difficult times. And, and for what you're doing, it seemed like the mission became even deeper and the Mm -hmm. purpose became even deeper. Creating culture, though, just internally, not externally, among your employees and here you are taking on this new role. Any tips or tricks for how you created a culture virtually? It is is more difficult when you're virtual versus in person.
1: It's 100% more difficult. Now, I think for some people, um, if you're an introvert, it might be better. I don't know if you're an extrovert. And I think on job function, it varies, right? An mm-hmm. engineer who might prefer a little bit of silence and just the writing of code, which is more of an independent job, you know, an IC role versus somebody who needs to put things on a wall and discuss things. I mean, they're, they're just things that you can't replace virtually. I think the idea of how do you create culture is not an easy one, but we've all sort of done it because what was the choice? I mean, I, I, like, in San Francisco. And my favorite thing is when people meet each other after never having met, right. I've hired people who I never met and you're like, Oh my God, you're tall. Oh my God, you're not like, (laughs) you know, on the box, everybody looks the same. Right. So it's kind of this amazing thing, but I think we, you know, we, we obviously had a lot of, we all got very comfortable with Google Hangouts or zoom. And for us, Early on, we really uh, encouraged people to stay on and and turn on their camera, right? And then actually, we learned that maybe that was actually really difficult—like mm-hmm. hours of just being present physically and feeling watched or, or watching others. And so then people would like, you know, go off camera to have their meals or wh- whatever the case was, or finding ways to block off time because it just felt like it was just wall-to-wall meetings. I think these are all things that we've learned, but I don't know that we figured it all out. And frankly, I think we're going to go back to. A version of a hybrid world when we come out of things. So
0: I think so too. I think, because I think people are really enjoying virtual work and I think they're getting more done. And you know, when, if you're getting more done and you're doing more productive work, then that's better for the the business overall.
1: You know, I think it depends again on, on the job function and mm-hmm. your age bracket. I mean, in your twenties, you learned a lot from being around other people and you needed the socialization that happened at work. So I think if you're a single mom, not having to, you know, have a two hour drive to go into work is a huge boon, but I see the ones who are in their twenties. They're the first ones who want to go back into the office for the most part. And these are all obviously generalities. So I think, um, yeah. And so in some ways it can be more productive because you don't have the commute on another way. There's something you miss when you're not in person, right? It's like the body language, the nuances, the things you could discuss
0: off screen, right? Like on the way out of a meeting, I completely (laughs) agree. Exactly. Um, I'm fascinated by your side hustle, which is New York City Next, and as if you don't have enough on your plate, right? (laughs) Can you please explain what NYC Next is? And and how'd you come up with the idea?
1: So in August of 20, sort of tired of all the stories that New York City was dead, and we were obviously living here, we emailed some friends and said, who's tired of all these stories? And who's in to try and help? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. one of the things on next door, sometimes you see how people are frustrated about things in the neighborhood. Frankly, that morning, the first thing I did was start a group on my next door, it was my third group now called I Love New York More Than Ever, because I wanted to remind my neighbors of why we lived here, right? It was easy at that time to complain about the streets being empty, the restaurants, you know, being under pressure. It was easy to admire the problem. And for me, part of it was like, let's remember what makes this city great. And so I started this group called I love New York more than ever. I then turned to my dress book and said, who's in to help. So the group itself on, on um, I love New York more than ever quickly grew to over a thousand people. And it's not like I was nurturing it. It was just like, there was clearly this need of people saying like, I came here. I, I remember one of my favorites was a guy saying he lived in a 500 square foot apartment. He still lived in it and how he would prefer that to having all kinds of space, which I, could relate to having had one of those apartments myself to then turning to my community to say who's in to help. And then we sort of imagined really this grassroots movement that was New York city next. And really Carolyn, Andy, my husband and I sort of were the organizing principle to get everybody together on a zoom call the following week. And we sort of had done some thinking about what made New York, New York. And a big part of that was sort of the serendipity of coming across a busker in the subway and discovering it was Miley Cyrus, right? Like sort of the (laughs) serendipity of amazing art that you could just find anywhere. And so we knew that the city had lots of issues that it needed help with from homelessness to having homeschool children. But where we decided to focus first was on trying to change the narrative around the city and remind New Yorkers of why New York was not dead And also leverage what we could to help the artist community who was hardest hit because their jobs just totally went away. And so whatever money we raised from friends and family, we paid a stipend to the artist to perform. And we had a lot of marketers in the group as well. I think one of the things about New York and this group was that there was a lot of different kinds of people with a lot of different kinds of background and expertise. So we sort of were able to leverage that and say, we're going to do these pop-ups. We'll remind people of these moments of joy. It was COVID, so we weren't actually promoting them.
0: But I remember the, I remember the moment with Bernadette Peters, mm-hmm. and you had, you know, reminding people about Broadway and live music, and what is at the heartbeat and the drumbeat of New York City is that just artistic expression for, for those who live there feels like, and in many ways, they're right, can only happen there
1: you know, it's funny. I was on a call the other day with Tom and Michael and Tom was talking about how a Broadway show is people with different expertise and you come in and you sort of build on each other. And that's kind of what this experience was, right? Like I wouldn't have known what song to pick or, you know, how to get Bernadette Peters, but once they came, we sort of knew we wanted to celebrate artists. We knew that we wanted to bring back joy. And then when we came up with the idea, then they sort of got to doing and thinking about who they got and who else to enlist to make that moment happen. Mm. And I ran the marketing effort with a whole bunch of other people and we got to like, okay, how are we going to get the steps? Like we got to problem solving on logistics and sort of how to amplify that moment. Cause again, we weren't promoting any of these events because it was in the height of COVID where people were not gathering. So we had to make sure everybody wore masks, that we had all the protocols, that we captured it on video to promote on social but that we enabled just that one moment to sort of show up and remind New Yorkers of what made New York, New York.
0: Isn't it interesting how, if you start with a strong emotion, and I mean this in a very broad broad way, uh, not Broadway, but you know, Broadway, is that if you start with a strong emotion, whether you're working at Hyatt, and it's the beauty and power of travel, or whether you're working at Southwest Airlines, right? And it's a, as you've said previously, it's about, selling freedom, right? It's about an emotion, something that people feel. And when you think of New York, people on a spectrum are more powerfully aligned with the love of New York than probably any other city in this world, because it's so hard to live there and involves, it takes so much out of you. And it's so daunting, draining and invigorating all at once that when you start with a powerful emotion, then being able to kind of start there. And then, as you said, you're shifting over to the other side of your brain to go in to how can we amplify that emotion to other people and storytell?
1: Yeah, it was was a lot. Look, I think New York has given many of us many things, and it is not an easy place to live, but frankly, it's the best place to live. Now, I think people feel this way about a lot of places um, that they choose to live, right, or they happen to live. And I think for us, it was like, okay, how do we actually get to doing And I think the key was starting with a lot of doers who, when you said, okay, who's in to help? They actually got to doing, not just saying, I have lots of ideas. It was like people who had ideas and actually could do, right? Mm -hmm. All of us had other jobs, all of us had side hustles. So, you know, I had a day job and then I was also working on this. And again, we were able to bring in lots of people and everybody said, everybody who was here or even not here, but could work remotely said yes. And I think it, you know, a friend of mine said at the time, Jennifer Reingold said, out of despair comes purpose. And I think Mm. it felt so good to have something positive to work on versus just, you know, be paralyzed by the fact that things were bad and they were bad.
0: Yeah, they were bad, and and, they, and people needed support mentally, and I felt like that's what you were doing. You were cheerleading in in a really uh, beautiful way. So my hat off to you for that. It was fun to watch from afar. Question for you, and I'm sure you get this a lot, so that's why I'm I'm ac- specifically asking this in the podcast for people who are interested in marketing and are interested in sort of the varied career that you've had working at NBC and Hyatt and now um, at Nextdoor. When someone gets into the world of marketing, what advice do you give them and what can they do to make sure that they are a utility player and are really um, not only learning and absorbing, but adding to the, to the role of the CMO.
1: With anything, I think like for me, it's a lot about curiosity and genuinely being interested in the customer I'm serving. Like how, you know, when things were bad, it was like, how can we be there meaningfully for neighbors? What is going on with neighbors? What, what is happening with them? and sort of understanding the insight that drives what's happening to them to try and figure out how you can leverage what you have at Nextdoor to solve that pain point for them. That's kind of the basic of marketing. There's new tools, but that <laughs> premise hasn't changed, right? And so I think there's more art and science now because there's a lot more analytics and marketing than there used to be, but you're solving the same problem. You're just solving it with different tools now, um, additive tools. But in the end, you're still trying to drive consideration and consideration comes from moving the mind and the heart, right? The reason the khaki campaign was so good is because it made people feel something. Mm -hmm. And so the best ads or the best campaigns or the best activations, or frankly, the best efforts connect both the heart and the mind, right? It's respect and love. It's, I, I want that. I mean, I say all the time, why did we all love those nano ads when they had them for Apple? It was like, Oh my God, it was like loyalty beyond reason. You would see the billboard, you were like, I want a nano in every color. It was totally beyond logic, right? I think that's when you know you've really unlocked something. It's not that the technology of Apple was so much better than all the competitors, they were able to differentiate themselves based on what they stood for. And I think really great brands uh, clearly articulate what they stand for beyond just the functionality.
0: How much bandwidth do you have to look around you and see what inspires you? How much do you take inspiration from other companies and what they're doing,
1: or, or what's what's kind of what are your thoughts on that? Uh, look, I, as you could see from like my pathway, right? I was always interested in lots of things, and I think in connective tissue ways. So I need the I need the space to be able to explore other things because other inputs are what actually give me new ideas. So, you know, it's harder on Zoom, right? I probably have less read books, although I do consume a ton of video content of all kind. So I think, you know, making sure that you have a way to get new inputs is really important. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I do occasionally, which I wish I had more time to do is now if somebody says to me, you know, somebody would be like, oh, you need an SEO specialist and I don't know everything I need to know about that. I begin asking who's good at that. And then I actually just reach out to people and say, could we just have a no agenda 15 minute meeting? And I just meet new people. Mm, Um, That's good. I actually met this guy who told me that there is something called SEO Oktoberfest or some version of that where basically like the best SEO people get together in Germany. And I thought to myself, like, that's just amazing. Yes. You know, it's, and I do the meetings with no agenda. And I mean, when was the last time people had no agenda meetings, right? Okay, it's, I love that. A 15 minute no agenda meeting just to learn. Yeah, well, just to get to know somebody. Yes. Somebody said, this person is good. I'm like, okay, how can I? So I try and put in 15 minute meetings and just, I sometimes reach out and say, I hear we should know each other. Like, let's just have a 15 minute no agenda meeting. And I think, you know, over time that comes back to you, whether it's in a thought or you think of something that this person might be good for in your mm-hmm. org, someplace else. I think for me, again, I think. If I go back to New York City Next, we did a podcast, Tom, Michael, and I, because the three of us had um, worked on uh, the moment for Broadway together. And I say like New York City Next was enabled by 600 volunteers. So it's really not about us. But one of the things that we were discussing was when we went out to our community to ask for the favor of like, would you step in to help on this effort? We had built years of relationships. And one of the things mm. that I think all of us who came in and stepped into New York City Next had in common was that we had built relationships, not on a transactional basis ever. Like for us, the relationship was the goal. There wasn't an end goal at the end of that transaction. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so I think, um, when you went out to ask and you were really just asking because you cared about the city and you wanted to make a difference, the people who stepped in basically were your tribe. Mm-hmm. And so by the way, those relationships were built over time. And so I think like, w- What is any of any job enabled? What is community? Community is relationships. And when you step in and you're there meaningfully for people, they remember, Hmm. you know, it's when you're there for people in a transactional way. I say that's what networking is, right? Networking was always sort of this dirty word, where like you wanted something from somebody. Right. For me, right. It
0: like, And it felt dirty. It's like it, who it, wants to go to good. a networking event, right?
1: Feel so good, right? Yeah. For me, it was like I genuinely like people. I was I always thought everybody was smarter than me, and I always thought I could learn something from somebody. Everybody had a good story if you took the time to ask. And so, you know, I think that's what a good marketing person is. Like you ask questions. You know to ask questions, and you don't think you have all the answers. But then it's also about connective tissue of combining these pieces together.
0: Yeah, no. And, and, and I feel like what really has set you apart, and because I've heard you speak on stage, I've followed you for many years, we've met in person. I really feel like it's your curiosity and the fact that you belong in every room and you've always found the positive in every environment. And I'm sure there's been many environments that weren't altogether positive, but you were able to thrive in spite of them.
1: You know, I mean, it's an interesting commentary. I think, um, I don't know that I belonged in every room. I don't know that I felt like I belonged in every room. So Mm -hmm. let's start with that. But I think Mm -hmm. as a kid who moved around a lot, um, and I heard somebody say this, so I'll borrow this expression, was that I chose to put that aside. You know, I I have the ability to compartmentalize, right? I mean, I moved here in the States in the middle of the hostage crisis. Now I was fortunate and I didn't have an accent, but I was definitely from Iran, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, my parents dressed Western, we didn't have an accent, so it was easier but my point is it was not exactly a welcoming time Mm -hmm. if you were from a place that most people associated with, you know, hostages.
0: So what was it? What was it that allowed you to be able to not let that, you know, all of the headspace that could have made you feel like I can't be here, I don't belong, but what made you able to move forward in spite of that?
1: I think you have to choose. It's like an act. Now, listen, We know all kinds of things about anxiety and depression and all things. And this is not something that everybody can do, but it was a little bit of like being able to choose to not see the obstacles. It's not that the obstacles weren't there. They were there in spades, but it's sort of like, I have a new visual, which is like, you have to swipe them aside. Mm. Like they're there. Swipe (laughs) right. Swipe right. You know, and um, I, I think it's a bit of a choice of like not, not letting that knowing it's there. Now you can let that overtake you, or you can try to see past that and say, yeah, okay, so yes, I'm in a room where nobody's like me, but I'm just putting that aside and focusing on the work.
0: Mm, focusing on the work. Those four words, I think, cannot be underestimated because when you focus on the work and, and making sure that you are additive and productive and substantive, I feel like that in a lot of ways, not all, takes care of itself.
1: You know, it's, it's one of the things I've learned now over time. I focused on the work. I was really Um, I was like a dog with a bone. If I really believed in an idea, I really just stuck to it. Mm -hmm. I was also incredibly curious. So I'm sort of like my grandmother. And then I was like the energizer bunny. I just, you know, I I just went to millions of things. I took in lots of things. And then I think the other thing is that um, I didn't care as much about getting the credit. I mean, I knew Mm -hmm. that I was doing the work. It was like, I made room for other people at the table. Like, Mm -hmm. I just understood that if you didn't hog the ball, there was more opportunity to move the mountain. You know, they're basic lessons That's that you learn right? as a kid, which is like work with people smarter than you. Don't hog the ball. Like all those things that you learn in preschool. Like in some, like they they're there for a reason. And I think there were jobs where there was a lot of people waiting to take credit. And if we focused on who was getting credit, we would never have been able to sell something in or move it forward. But then once it became successful, like you know, the people who needed to know knew who did the work. And by the way, we never did it alone. I think for me, again, if you go back to this idea of community it was never about me versus somebody else. It was always a, we, I always wanted to be part of the, we, I wanted to be on the bus. I didn't need to be the leader of the bus, Mm. but that's probably who I always was. And there are moments now at a startup, which is a very different experience where I say to myself, you know, you do these tests, you do these personality tests at all these jobs. And I've discovered that I'm apparently much more of a directive. Like I direct my style is more directive. But the truth is I've adapted my directing style over the years to be much more accommodating because by accommodating, I was able to get more people to the table. Mm. Now there's times where you do need to be more directive. And I think that's always things that you're challenged by, but I go back to this idea of belonging because I think it's such an important, important moment. And Like, it looks easy now, but I think about how the younger generation treats that differently than we did, right? We, it was sort of like, you had to get along, to go along, to get along or whatever that expression was. And um, if you saw all the obstacles, it would have been hard. It would have been hard to, you know, push forward. And by the way, sometimes it was hard, but you know, if you have people who reminded you, I mean, I grew up with a mom who always sort of was like, you can still be Oprah. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, You still can,
0: Miriam. You still can. (laughs) Yes. You've There's got
1: some- many, many moons to go before we're done with your career. I I I she she never saw the ba- I mean, she never saw the barriers and she sort of always played that out. Mm-hmm. But of course there were plenty of them, right? So right. it seems easy when you look in retrospect, but there were many times where you're like, oh my God, I'm stuck or I don't know a way forward or I can't do this job or whatever the case may be.
0: Well, I feel like you could hold a master class in community and collaboration. And there are two very difficult things. There's an art to both. And it's just fascinating to follow your career. I really, really appreciate your time today. If people are listening and they want to learn more, they should definitely follow you. Um, I hope to one day have a glass of
1: sangria at Tia Pole with you, Miriam. I would love that. And everybody should come have sangria at Tia Pole. It's very good.
0: Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefor.tv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv tv and Facebook at for with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the Podcast, American National Spiritless and Terludo Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmor. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers. Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon.